Happy Easter. You tell I got my kind of my, my little Easter purple on. You know, I, I must tell you, this is a somewhat traumatic experience for me. Easter, all these years later, I'm still stunned by the fact that uh, I'm, I'm here doing what I'm doing all weekend long. I'm Brian, in case you don't know me. And actually, before I tell you about that, I'll also let you know in a couple minutes, we're going to have um, uh, some volunteers come forward with little bags and they're going to have the opportunity to be generous. Uh, Easter is celebrating the most generous thing that ever happened when Jesus gave up himself, gave himself uh, in a way that I should have given up myself if I were to die for all the things that I've justly brought upon myself. Jesus actually pays that penalty himself and he is the most generous being that's ever walked the planet. And so if you're newer here today, no worries. We're excited you're here. Just let the bag pass you by when it comes. But if you've been around for a while, you know this is the opportunity we have to be generous and building into people here at Crossroads, whether in Oakley or Mason, people around the globe. And, uh, and it's a great, great day to do that. But I'm, I am surprised that I'm doing this. You know, a little, my, a little bit of my history here is I grew up in a church-going family, and I used to hate Easter, hated it, could not stand it. Uh, I remember getting Sunday best put on me and jammed into some little suit, and some of you might be in a suit here today because you enjoy that, you enjoy getting dressed up on Easter. That's cool, man. Whatever your gig, whatever your gig is, that's fine. But for me, I didn't like getting in scratchy things and being paraded in front of people. I, I didn't like being bored in church. I didn't like a couple years later when I was still wearing the same thing and I looked like a loser even though I was wearing floods. Uh, I, I, I didn't like that stuff. I, I didn't like that I was wasting perfect, good spring day. And then all of a sudden, sudden something happened to me, which is why I'm here today. I believe the greatest thing that ever happened on the earth 2,000 years ago, that there was a man named Jesus who literally rose from the dead, literally. And I never started out occupationally thinking I would do what I'm doing right now. I, I actually was called and thought that I was going into working with junior high and senior high kids. And the only reason I wanted to do that forever is because the message of Jesus, the reality of a physical, historical resurrection that I dug into radically transformed my life. And many of us in here will never have a change in vocation for that, and you shouldn't. But I'm hoping that there's a change in attitude, a change in mindset that may happen in our lives as a result of this unbelievable thing that took place 2,000 years ago. Romans 8, chapter 10 says this. And if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who lives in you. So what this is saying is, as Jesus, as my studies concluded, literally came back from the dead, that spirit of God that empowered him, that filled a dead, lifeless body, is the same spirit that can inhabit people today. It's the same spirit that may inhabit you for the first time today. Some books I've done and reading on this that have been helpful for me, and they might be for you, these are newer ones, uh, by N.T. Wright, also Gary Habermas, Lee Strobel, a former award-winning journalist with the Chicago Tribune. If you want to dig into this, you can. You can also go to Crossroads' uh, website and look at past message on Easter where we dug more into the literal and historical proofs on this. But this is something that, that changes our world. It changes how we approach things to understand that God actually came and dwelt amongst us and proved that he was God by actually coming back from the dead. I was thinking about this when I was watching Undercover CEO, Undercover Boss, rather. How many of us have seen Undercover Boss? 
Not undercover angel, midnight fantasy, under, what's that old, remember that old song? Those of you who are 40 plus, undercover angel, midnight, whatever it is. Uh, undercover boss. Uh, how many of us have seen this song, uh, this, this, this show again? A number of us, all right, wow, a lot of TV, TV watchers in here. Oh, good for you. So last week, I was um, just watching this. I'd never seen it before. My favorite shows, I hate to go on record by saying it, but I will tell you, my favorite shows are American Idol and Lost. Lost is almost... Lost is almost over. It's almost over and gone, but it's been a great, 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 great run. But I happened to uh, be on television. This thing popped on, and I remember watching the advertisement for this, oh, some time ago. And I realized I totally misunderstood what the show is about. My twisted idea of what it would be like for the boss, the CEO of a large organization, who then goes and does manual grunt work with those in the lower parts of the organizational structure, which is very clear from the ads, my twisted view is I guess this person comes down, finds out who the bad supervisors are, and then fires them. That's what I thought what the uh, show was going to be about, which is really a, a twisted statement on me. I realized that. And what I found on watching the show was an amazing illustration of love. CEO who's over amusement parks and many things that uh, people go to, to to bond with their family, grows a beard, puts on glasses, puts on a hat, and goes and hangs out with a guy who gets up at 3.30 in the morning to hose off the amusement park blacktop. And he gets to know this guy's story. Either five or seven kids, two of them are adopted, lost his house to a fire, and he doesn't have anything to get back on his feet. So he's just kind of figuring out, figuring out as he goes on, catching on with various friends for a time being. And then this also CEO figures out that there's a younger kid who's working hard at his in his organization, has a dream to design roller coasters and shows him this model of a roller coaster that's actually underwater. CEO interacts with a a single mom who works in the banquet facility, and because she's paying for childcare, she can't afford the childcare when she's let go early from that day because the business isn't high enough, yet she has to pay a full day's fees for the child worker. And then as the show goes at the end, the CEO calls these people to his office. They fly them there. They have no idea who he is. And there's this clean-shaven guy that they thought was simply a trainee. And he tells them the good news. Tells them the good news that there's a $10,000 benefit to help employees get back on their feet who have experienced catastrophe. There's the good news that, 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 that we are going to now give you a scholarship and help you understand how to do what you do well, what your natural passion is so you can come to work for us. To tell a single mom, now I understand what's happening and how our best employees are not able to be free to work, so we're going to start a child care facility. And I sat there watching this, and I was like getting all emotional about it. And I've noticed this about myself. <laughs> Why are you laughing at me getting emotional? I don't know. <laughs> I noticed something, and, and that is that whenever I get emotional, it tends to be when my heart is in sync with the heart of God. It is when God's values are resonating with who I am. The Bible says that we are created in the image of God. This means there's capacities that we have that no other created being on heaven and earth has. And when we sense or understand certain things, it resonates us. It's like a violin that's being played. And that tone goes to instruments like us. And when we're in tune, it makes a beautiful, beautiful thing. And this is the story, why this was resonating with me. This is the story of Jesus. The cosmic CEO, if you will, 
that takes a demotion who has always existed from the beginning of time, always existed as God himself, up in the heavens, actually comes down and experiences grunt human beings like you, you and I. Experience the full breadth of life. Actually is inside of a womb, comes through a womb, understands what it's like to, to nurse, understands what it's like to, to have insults hurled at him, accused of being a bastard child, picked on by other people, as kids are. Actually goes into a blue-collar work, experiences what it's like to hit his thumb with the hammer, experiences what it's like to, to have frustrations. There's something beautiful about that, that God actually comes down. Now, at some point, every analogy breaks down. God doesn't come and dwell amongst us because he doesn't understand what it's like. He's God. He knows all things. But he comes and dwells amongst us so we can understand that he actually cares. He cares for us. And folks, there's people all over the globe right now, 2,000 years later, who are experiencing something like this this weekend because this happened. Because God broke into our world 2,000 years ago. Every tribe, every tongue, all kinds of colors, all kinds of nationalities, all kinds of locations, all kinds of economic abilities all over the globe are celebrating this because something happened 2,000 years of, ago of power. God actually came and dwelt amongst us and communicated to us, I care for you. You are of value. You are special to me. I want to enter into your world. In the book of Hebrews chapter 4 verse 15 speaks of this and says, for we do not have a high priest, speaking of Jesus, a priest is one who identifies with. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet was without sin. Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. It says Jesus experienced everything. He was tempted in every way, yet he didn't succumb to actually following through. But he felt every negative thing. It went up right up to the line on doing any negative bad thing that you and I have ever done. He understands us. He's been in our shoes. He's, he's experienced what it's like to be rejected. He's experienced what it's like to be laughed at. He's experienced what it's like to be concerned about his future. We just concluded a four-week all-church journey. Actually, 60 churches from an, around the entire region, tens of thousands of people did the same thing for six weeks, taking a look at the message of freedom that's found in the Bible and learning how to get free of things that are holding us back. And there were four major ones that we looked at, and there's hundreds of them, hundreds, but there was four we kind of dug into in the guides that we, that we gave out. One was bitterness. When we are bitter, when we're bitter, we, we don't feel free. We can't sense joy, bitterness. And one day we actually said, hey, if you test it out as red, being bitterness, being the primary issue you deal with. Raise your hand. People raised their hand. They were very bitter. They had to raise their hand. And then, um, and then another one is religion, the blue. And this is, a, this is a thing that says, I've got to do X, Y, and Z. I've got to go to a specific religious institution or establishment in order to get God to approve me, in order to get God to love me. And it must be hurt. It must be hurt. It must be painful. And if I'm not doing that, the God isn't really satisfied. I think it's one of the reasons why I kind of dig wearing a t-shirt on Easter. You know, if you like dressing up, good for you. But it's kind of my way in my own relationship with God to say, man, you know, I'm not playing the old Easter game of trying to impress people because that didn't work for me. You might like 
your clothes, but I never have good enough clothes to impress anybody with. And so it's a way for me kind of thumbing my nose at my old system that I used to operate, my system of religion trying to impress God by the things that I did. And then some of us tested out as green. We were afraid, very afraid, whether it was swine flu, birds flu, planes crashing, somebody cheating on us, the stock market tanking, me never getting a job again. I mean, it goes on and on and on. And then the one far and away that was the most popular, most popular, far and away the one that was most common. Like, yeah, I like that one the most. Far and away the one that was the most common was yellow, rejection. Rejection. Feeling like I'm not wanted. Feeling like if I don't perform, you will reject me. Going into a meeting and being concerned that I am rejected so I have got to button up my presentation and have everything perfect and sweat like bullets throughout the meeting because I don't want somebody to make me look dumb because if I look dumb, they will reject me. It's actually one of the reasons I think that the number one fear for people is public speaking. Because if I don't do well in front of people, I have all that much many more people who will reject me and say I'm stupid and say I'm not worthy. Rejection, it's also the reason why we tend to not have any close relationships. We keep people at a distance and actually we will say offensive things to other people or push them away in hopes that they won't get close enough to reject us so we reject them first. I mean, there's hundreds of examples of this theme of rejection. And my high priest, my cosmic CEO, Jesus himself experienced rejection. Start to finish experienced it. Never stopped for him. In fact, it was the most tense in the last hours of his life. If you read the last couple days of his life, you can look at it in the last couple chapters in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. It's the crescendo of all of those books in the New Testament portion of the Bible, talking about what Jesus did and what he said and what he accomplished. And it's amazing how he was rejected. He was rejected more than any of us can possibly fathom. He goes to pray in the Garden of Gethsemane. And as he's praying, he notices that something bad is going to happen very soon. He just senses it. And so he asks his closest friends, the disciples, would you pray with me? Would you pray for me? I'm going to be praying over here. I'd like you to just kind of pray where you are. I need your help. And in the middle of the night, he would be praying so intensely, it says that he was forming drops like blood around his scalp. He was so intense and intent on what he was saying. He would go back and check on his friends and they were sleeping. He said, can't you hang with me for one hour? All that I've done for you, all that I've sacrificed for you, I'm asking you for this one time, I'm asking you to have my back and support me and yet you can't pray for me. You can't have my back. He felt complete rejection. He felt rejection from the religious authorities who constantly told him, no, 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 no. Yes, you know the Bible very well. Yes, you can quote it very well. But no, no, we don't like your interpretation. And no, you aren't actually the Son of God. They rejected him over and over again. He actually was told by his close friend, Peter, well, at least one of his top three friends, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. Never, never. And Jesus says, well, in fact, you will. In fact, you'll, you'll deny me three times before the crack of death. The crack of day. Three times. Three times you will. And Peter does that. Once he's arrested and he's taken away, three times Peter says, Jesus, no, never heard of him. No, what's, he, who, what's his name again? He rejects that he has any notion of who Jesus was. Jesus has come and he's arrested after he's praying by the temple guard, basically the armed bodyguards of the religious elite. 
And as they come at night to, to rest him, they understand where he's going to be. But they don't know for sure which one he is, especially in dark. And one of Jesus' closest friends, Judas, sells him out. He rejects him. He rejects him by go and getting other people who are going to come and put pain on him. And Jesus comes and he receives Judas. And Judas kisses him, betrays him with a kiss. Fascinating thing here that... Uh, Kissing is one of the most intimate things that have ever happened. And Jesus and Judas didn't kiss, okay? It wasn't like an alpha, alpha kiss that happened or anything. Judas comes, and, Judas comes and, and, and kisses him, betrays him with a kiss. Paid prostitutes won't kiss. Won't kiss because it is a sign of intimacy. Just this little peck on his cheek and, and honoring and intimacy is the way that he's betrayed and rejected. He's come and gathered up and taken away to the, to the high priest and the Jewish elite, and they reject him. They say, absolutely not. You're ridiculous. We're sending you away. We are hoping that you will never give us trouble anymore. They send him to Pilate, the head of the Roman government that's in that area. And Pilate says, hey, uh, I, I really don't want to kill you or eliminate you, so we're going to do a little thing. We're going to put you up here, and we're going to put another guy, Barabbas, and I'll tell all the crowd, the whole multitude, Whoever you want me to release, as is tradition at this time of the year for you, I'll release. And some of the very people who sat under his teaching and said, amazing, amazing, your wisdom. Some of the very people, perhaps, who actually got healed by him are worked up in a frenzy and they scream for Barabbas. Release Barabbas, release Barabbas. The very crowds that were around Jesus and whom he only loved reject him and embrace a murderer, Barabbas, Instead, after that, Jesus is taken by Pilate and handed over to the Roman guards, and they beat him, beat him mercilessly. They scourge him. They take a cat of nine tails, tied into it are chunks of bone and glass and metal, and they lash his back 39 times. It was illegal to do 40, because at 40, you were virtually dead. You were marked as dead 39 times ridiculous amount of physical rejection, physical humiliation. And after that's over, they take him to a cross and they nail his wrists, nail his feet, lift him up. And all the while, that bruised, bloody, open wounds in his back are up against that cross. It's interesting that uh, many of us have crosses that are around our necks or on our earlobes and, and they may not be the actual crosses or a representative of the cross that Jesus himself was crucified on. There were actually two kinds of crosses that the Romans used. And here's a drawing of some of these. This comes from the Journal of the American Medical Association, who a number of years did a, a medical examination of what happened uh, with Jesus and whether or not it would have been possible for him to, to pass out and then wake up later versus die and then later come back from death. And they have the two kinds of crosses that were used by the Romans. The one on the right tends to be the one that... Uh, we attribute to having Jesus on. But in all likelihood, this was not the kind of cross that Jesus was on. Uh, for a number of reasons. It was not unusual for the Romans to, to put people on crosses. It was their form of official rejection. It was their form of official humiliation. It was their form of official intimidation. They would want to hang people who tried to come against them and reject Rome in, in view of everyone saying, if you mess with us, this is what happens. And so every once in a while, someone got crucified 
out beyond the city where they're going to have a unique crucifixion, they would have to fashion an entire cross like this. It's believed that Spartacus, who actually led a real rebellion against the nation of Rome with slaves that had escaped and finally was, uh, was captured, he and other slaves were crucified, probably on crosses like the one on the right, in line for a hundred miles, yes, I said a hundred miles, a hundred miles into Rome in display that we will conquer you, we will reject you, we will humiliate you, we will crush you if you oppose us. And to create those kind of crosses, they had to go from soup to nuts, create a cross, which meant creating everything, laying the person down on the ground, nailing them in, and then raising it up after they had dug a post hole, sticking it into the hole, and then wedging it in there so they could stay up. That's just too much effort to do every single time someone's crucified in Jerusalem. You would just have standard posts that were stuck there, put into the ground, and you would have the crossbar. And it would be much easier for two Romans to just push it up and bring it on top. See, what am I, what am I going into this for? Because Jesus was, didn't even have an honorable death. He didn't have a death where he had a special kind of crucifixion. He was, he was rejected and just murdered with the masses, with people on either side of him who were common criminals. He got nothing special other than special abuse, special rejection. I think he understood our human condition for this. I, I have this condition. I'm growing an awareness of it. I don't know what it is. I don't know how much traces back to uh, me being adopted at birth and being very thankful that my biological mother gave me up for adoption because it was an incredible loving thing on her part. But yet some psychologists may say that there was a primal awareness of being inside of a woman for nine months. And even though a couple days I was given over to a loving family, there was a broken bond there. Perhaps that's it. Perhaps it's part of the human condition as fallen creatures. We assume that I've done something wrong, so God doesn't like me. Perhaps it is for me that I have painful memories of, of, of not being picked for softball games, not being picked for, for murder ball. Boy, that was a good old day. Back when you used to do murder ball. Not dodgeball, murder ball. Yes, murder people. God bless America. We need to get back to that those days. Uh, maybe it's... Buying gifts for people in college and leaving the party and remembering seeing all of those gifts that were left behind. I don't know what it is, but I know that this has been a big, big issue with me. And I don't think I'm unique. I think it's very popular to us in Cincinnati. I think it's very popular amongst all humans in all time periods. I think this is why Jesus understood what the disciples are feeling before he was arrested. I think he understood. They were realizing that they may be abandoned by him leaving, they may be rejected. In fact, he said to them one time, it's to your benefit that I go away. It's to your benefit. They don't believe him. And he actually says this in the book of John chapter 14. I will ask the Father. He will give you another counselor to be with you forever. The spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him for he lives with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Jesus says, right now you may have the Spirit around you, and might, right now physically I may be with you, but there will come a day where the Spirit will not just be around you, it will be in you. I will not leave you as an orphan. That's the physically most painful way to be rejected. You're unaccepted, unloved, un, 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 uncoddled. You are physically rejected. Jesus says, I won't leave you as orphans. I will not reject you. In fact, the very Spirit that is going to raise me from the dead will be a Spirit that can be deposited in you. 
a spirit that causes you to feel and sense my approval for all time. I was uh, reading recently about an amazing thing that happened in uh, 2007 with one of the greatest violinists in the world, Joshua Harris, who felt rejection. I think he felt some rejection. When on January 12, 2007, the Washington Post put him up to a dare, actually requested, that he would go to the Metro Authority when people were getting on and off of subways and buses, and that he would just dress as a normal person with a hat on, take his violin, and play the violin with his case on the ground to see who would notice that one of the world's greatest violinists was in the house. Not many people noticed at all. A thousand 70 people passed by him in that 45 minutes. He got about $35 in tips. And they didn't realize that here was a guy who nights before had sold out the Boston Symphony with tickets averaging $100 a piece. And here he was holding a $3.5 million guitar, guitar, violin, a $3.5 million violin handcrafted by Antonio Stradivari in 1713. You can actually go and look at the video on YouTube. Look up, uh, you know, Josh, Joshua Bell, um, Washington Post, and, and you'll actually see the footage of the standard camera that's up in the corner watching this whole thing. Joshua Bell said this about this. He said, it was a strange feeling that people were actually uh, ignoring me. At, at a music hall, I get upset if someone coughs or someone's cell phone goes off. It is. When that happens, we feel dis devalued, rejected, not esteemed. And here he is in the extreme situation where no one gives a rip. The Washington Post goes on and says this. Bell thinks he did his best work of the day in those final few minutes. Jesus did the best work of his life in the final few minutes of his life. And one of the, what is one of the things that he says? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? <laughs> why have you forsaken me? Theologians believe that this is the moment the, the cosmic eternal transaction took place where all of my sins, all of my future rebellions, all of your sins, all of your rebellions, which should cause God and enable God to reject us because a perfect, loving, pure, holy, pristine God doesn't want to be around mud. He, he can reject us. He should reject us. I would, if I was God, reject you, but thankfully I'm not God. Instead, the one that should have never been rejected, the one who is only pure, the one who is only loving, receives all of the pain, all of the rebellion, all the sin of my life and the sin of the whole world on his back. And when God sees that, he rejects that. He rejects the one who is bearing that. And even him, in the final minutes of his life, does the best part of his work and says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? One of the more interesting stories in the Bible is right before this litany of rejection happens, there's a story of a woman who honors Jesus. Actually, if you watch the video of Joshua Bell, you'll see there's a woman at the end of the video, they fast forward it, who, who's just standing there. And at the end of his time, as he's putting his case together, she walks up to him, she's noticed who he is, and she starts talking with him. Again, it struck me, it struck me, because there is Jesus, there is the eternal truth, because in the final moments of Jesus' life, there was a woman. There was a woman who noticed and came and gave him lavish, generous adoration and affection. That line, that song said, he is not here. He, he is not here. He nowhere to be found. 
One of the greatest reasons why I believe in the historical resurrection of Jesus is all kinds of people had a vested interest to discredit him. All they had to do was find a body, just produce a body. There's all kinds of creative theories that have popped up over the last several years of what might have happened. Fact of the matter is, the most powerful people in the history of the world could not find a body. Why? He's not here. He's not here. Not here. Gone. Risen. As in abandoned you? No, not abandoned you. As in rejected you, even though the one person that would have the right to reject because he is above reproach, he even chooses, no, I don't reject you. I die for you. I die for you. Why is he not here? He's here because he can be in here. Because the Spirit has come to give you life. Life indeed. We have, a, we have decisions to make. Will we be bonded with Jesus? Will we allow his Spirit to dwell inside of us, to make a commitment to Him and receive Him. He says, I will not leave you as orphans. I will not. You will have full understanding of where I'm going. I will tell you where I'm going. I will not leave you. I will inhabit you. Some of us may want to be inhabited right now. You might want to stand on the shoulders of millions of people who have gone before us for the last two thousands of years of people who are all over the globe celebrating this reality. God, I pray for every last person here right now, specifically and especially for those who have felt orphaned, for those who have felt rejected, for those who have felt left out in the cold, who have felt like you don't care, who have felt like you must not be real. We may for the first time sense that, no, you have not abandoned us. You are calling us. You are inviting us. You want to inhabit us. So, for those of us who want to receive you, Jesus, into our life, receive your spirit, the Holy Spirit, we just say, come in. Come in right now. God understands the thoughts of your heart. He understands the intentions of your words. He's been waiting for this day for eternity for you. Hey, why don't we stand together? can't help but uh, sing this as a prayer and as a response to God for what He's done. Amazing, most amazing thing that's ever been done. If you're where I am, let's sing this together. <laughs>